You are listening to the Actor Aesthetic Podcast, episode 90, featuring special guest Ellen Lettrich, founder of the Fund for College Auditions. Let's get started. What's up, everyone? This is Maggie Berra, and welcome to another episode of the Actor Aesthetic Podcast, where I take you behind the scenes of the theater industry. The Actor Aesthetic Podcast is produced every single week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at actoraesthetic.com slash podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Actor Aesthetic, or join our Facebook group, the newly named Actor Aesthetic Alliance. All links are in the show notes. Let's get on to the show. Did you know that Actor Aesthetic has an online store? You can now search through the Actor Aesthetic shop to find downloadable cover letter samples, resume templates, audition journal spreadsheets, and hundreds of audition song suggestions categorized by voice type and genre. Level up your audition game and go to actoraesthetic.com slash shop. Well, hey, friends, it's Maggie. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Actor Aesthetic Podcast. We have a very special guest today, and I've known her since 2013 when I myself auditioned for musical theater college programs. Meet Ellen Lettrich. Ellen has been working with young musical theater and acting performers for almost 29 years, first as a high school classroom teacher and theater director, and after receiving her MS in speech language pathology, as a medical voice therapist. Her diverse teaching experiences led her to found Musical Theater College Auditions, otherwise known as MTCA, a college theater audition preparatory company. Ellen built MTCA's team of actively working teaching artists who themselves are grads of rigorous theater training programs such as Juilliard, Yale, Carnegie Mellon, the University of Michigan, Boston Conservatory, and so many more. Over the past 20 years, MTCA has prepared hundreds of students for college theater auditions and yielded exceptional success rates. Through her work with MTCA, Ellen saw how difficult it can be for low-income students and those from underrepresented communities to access the information and financial resources needed to be competitive in the audition process for college-level acting and musical theater programs. So what happens next, you ask? Well, Ellen founded the Fund for College Auditions to bridge this information and financial gap to support the expenses that are part of the college audition process, to provide fair compensation to experienced, innovative, student-centered teaching artists who can help these students excel artistically, and to subsidize college audition information workshops for underserved high schools and theater groups. In this episode, I chat with Ellen about her inspiration behind the Fund for College Auditions, why representation in the arts is so important, and how low-income students can take advantage of free resources and scholarships. Lots of information packed in this one, so without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our chat. Ellen, we are so lucky to have you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for asking me to join you. Mm -hmm. So you've been working with young musical theater and acting performers for almost 29 years. 29. 
fine. So how did you initially get involved in that? That is a good question. My academic path is really, I would say circuitous, but it kind of all led to the other things I do. So I loved singing in high school, but I quit because I was dismayed about my own abilities. And I thought you could never learn to be better, which is so not true, which I finally learned when I went to grad school for speech pathology. Um, But I always I share that with young singers who aren't confident about their own voices, because that's part of singing, it's muscle memory. So quit singing, went to and I love academics, went to school for nursing, and then switched to history. But in the meantime, and through all of that, I founded a group at Villanova, which still exists all these years later. It's now called VSMT, Villanova Student Musical Theater. That's much cooler than what we called it. We just called it music, I don't remember, musical theater. (laughs) But I discovered this love of musical theater kind of in college, which were the years of Les Mis and uh, Miss Saigon and prior to that Phantom, like the big mega musicals and also once on this island which i actually saw two or three times on broadway the original cast because i could take the train up and um from villanova so i didn't consider being a professional performer because i knew i needed academics in some form also but i ended up working for a theater school in pittsburgh called act one theater school which is an amazing organization founded by this incredible woman karen cordaro and she was an incredible mentor and through that i started to I always liked picking songs for people. That's just a weird spidey skill that I had. <laughs> so I got immersed in that aspect of college auditions. And then I became a classroom teacher in Ohio, in a place called Canfield, Ohio. And students would ask me who wanted to audition. And I actually wasn't hired to do drama. There, there's no drama certification in Ohio. At least there wasn't at the time. And my undergrad degree was in history. So I was, so I was the social studies teacher with all the costumes. We acted things out, which sounds foolish, but it was actually pretty effective. And they actually let me design a course called History Through Acting. We learned about historic moments and movements through analysis of text, whether it's musicals or plays. All of that was happening and students knew that I was I had this spidey skill of matching voices Mm. to songs and they would ask me, you know, can you help? And I would say yes. And then I remember one young woman asked me to come. Her parents weren't available and she said, do you want to ride along to my Carnegie Mellon audition? And it was about an hour, like easy drive, an hour and a half on the highway from Carnegie Mellon. So I went and I remember being in that room, like where the parents and students sit and just so fascinated by everything they were saying. That was sort of my first real interest in the whole college theater process. Soon after, I developed a partnership with the high school where I taught and the senior class at Carnegie Mellon, the senior MT class, who was working to raise money for their showcase. I think they called it leagues at the time, but they basically had to pay for part of their, they they go to LA and New York and they had to pay for half of it essentially. And then the school supplemented the rest. So they would do things like sell cookbooks and, you know, holiday. (laughs) I have a Carnegie Mellon cookbook, no joke, and I have a Christmas CD with Telly Leung singing the riftastic version of Oh Holy Night, which is so cool. I have to find it. Throughout this, I was also discovering, oh, I could perform in music theater, and I did a lot of shows in the Pittsburgh area for fun and like the kinds of regional slash community theater where you get like gas money and two pennies. I had a good friend in particular who was kind of the fundraising chair of her year, and I said, bring your class to my high school. We'll give you a big donation from the drama boosters and we'll, you know, everybody can sing a song, sit on the edge of the stage. We'll do a Q&A. We did that in 1999. 
And then at the same time, Skype was, uh, so in the early 2000s, Skype was a thing. And somebody reached out to me on a message board um, from College Confidential. Some of you might know it. Somebody reached out and said, do you, do you teach via distance? And I said, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> and that was the beginning of distance teaching. When people ask about the MTCA, the for-profit group that I founded, I always say, you know, but not on purpose. And I think that that is great from an educational perspective. It's not that easy from a business perspective to try to put a business model in place afterward. But it it was really just this um, authentic, you know, me and my friends who knew about monologues and dance gradually, you know, surrounded myself with them. And I called them my genius bar. I'm so impressed because I was just looking at the MTCA webpage and Mm -hmm. holy cow, has it grown tremendously since I auditioned for college. Yeah. I think now there's like upwards of 80 people who coach now through MTCA. I sold MTCA at the beginning of 2019 to my yeah. two dear colleagues. And actually we had been co-owners for several years prior, uh, Charlie Murphy and Leo Ash Evans. We had a meeting last night because I work for them as an independent contractor specializing in the vocal aspect of what is done. And there were, I think like 67 people on the call the reason we have that many coaches is so that they can remain doing their acting work and still have enough time for students. So no one has a huge student load. And we actually ask the students, because I'm involved in meeting all of the new MTs, especially to hear them sing um, and assess their vocal health and see what they need technically. We always ask them, what do you like in a teacher? And that's important with TFCA, the Fund for College Auditions, because since I built both, those sensibilities are really um, you know, they're pretty identical across the board. So talk to me about the inspiration behind the fund for college auditions. What was the process like of getting it started and what was the inspiration? Well, the inspiration was meeting people who were from lower income situations who just couldn't afford. I know that MTCA is really reasonably priced and nonetheless, there are people that don't have any disposable income. We would meet those people and MTCA always ask teaching artists when we meet, met those people and it was clear that they were going to work their butts off and were just really passionate and had significant financial need um, if t- the teaching artists would work for a lower percentage of what they make. So that was how scholarships worked. It was that. And I never felt awesome about that, even though they were very generous. They are very generous teaching artists. So I had been thinking about it for so many years. And the, the, what stopped me was my reticence to my fear of how the heck do you make that work paperwork wise I don't know and I would google a little bit and then hit a wall and I hate paperwork to begin with honestly we had students who would come and they had their own 501c3 it's called nonprofits for really cool causes and I'm thinking all right you're 17 and you have a 501c3 obviously yeah. somebody helped you found it but I got to do this so Googling more, I found this amazing group called VLA, which stands for Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. They have a very strong branch in New York, and they've been around for more than 50 years. They do a monthly, non, it's basically like nonprofit for dummies. It explains the, the fundamental steps of setting up a nonprofit. So that was actually in February of 2018 that I did that workshop. So then we started the paperwork. I was able to take the sale money from MTCA and seed fund it, meaning I basically give the organization a loan. You have to legally give the organization a loan, and then they can pay it back with the lowest amount of interest allowable by the government. And that's how we started. But we got some really wonderful donations initially. I mean, just the 
fees associated with pre-screens and auditioning itself, audition fees and pre-screen fees. They have criteria for kids to get fee waivers, but it doesn't always really align with their financial situation. And some schools aren't, some high schools are just overwhelmed with that. And I don't blame them having worked in a high school for seven years. So between that and any kind of travel and just things like, you know, I need piano tracks. So just if you go with a bare minimum and not think about skill prep, which is such an important part of the college process now, because it's so much, it's just so competitive in terms of skill level. um, It's still really expensive. I just knew that we could help with that. It now has coincided with this finally increased awareness of how black indigenous and people of color how how that systemic racism has affected everything the historically underserved populations in film and tv that we've identified are the bipoc actors trans non-binary disabled actors neurodiverse and weight diverse we're aware that those representation levels are going to change and we may also be overlooking a group that we haven't thought of so hit us up and tell us how do you choose the students that you grant scholarships to? It's a great question. So uh, we have an application on our website. So they have to do several things. And then we have a rubric that is weighted. First of all, they can self-screen for income levels. And we use the housing and urban development criteria. If they qualify through that, meaning there are three categories of income, need, low income, very low income, and extremely low income, and, the, and it's based on um, amount of people in your family too, in your household. Mm-hmm. And what's hard about COVID, and we haven't really had to tackle this yet, but I, we were going to, is I know a lot of people's incomes radically changed, but we'll figure it out. We have a great education board and a lot of great brains who can help me figure that out. Once they know their income qualified, then they get two teacher recommendations. One has to be academic. We really put a lot of value on those because we need to know they're going to work their butts off, Mm -hmm. that they're really passionate about this. And that, you know, this process, any of you that have gone through it know that it is not always fun. All the application piece, you have a lot of deadlines to meet. You're being a senior in high school, whether that's virtual or not, you know, and or gap year student or transfer student, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that's viable for us. But the non-fun part, you have to be just as good at. So uh, also we look at their academics because they are applying for college. And then, of course, we do audition them. They do um, a monologue or tell us a story. They don't have to know a monologue. They sing a song. It can be a cappella or not if they're an MT. Um, dance is a little, you know, kind of bonus, but we don't require dance at all. And I don't think anybody's ever submitted dance, which is totally fine because we can set them up with training. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the big thing is we ask them to talk to us. And I have some, quote, interview questions. But it's really getting a sense of their personality and yeah. why, why they love theater, how they got started. We have an education committee carefully selected, some of whom just look at the artistic pieces, some of whom are teachers or uh, we have a college counselor who looks at the transcript, the teachers look at the recommendations, and then we make determinations from that. And the way we're set up is I keep saying we're deep rather than broad, meaning like we fund the whole process. The way this process is now, and I'm told schools are working on making it more affordable, Mm -hmm. but that's been an average of $18,000 a student once you add everything up. And I will say that I know there are MTCA is one of them. And um, I know there are other coaching organizations out there that have their own scholarship for Mm -hmm. the training. And I think what's different about us is number one, you can, it's not just specific to a certain coaching organization, but most importantly, I think for the student's process, 
or equally importantly, is funding all of those, the travel, the lodging, and all of the things that you forget that add up, like dance shoes and the clothing. Some of our students have one suitcase among many family members, so they get to pick out suitcases and new dance Mm -hmm. bags or gym bags, whatever you want to call it. Of course, they all get a humidifier and a steamer because I am a voice artist. You know, basically, we want our scholars to have everything that their better funded peers have for the actual auditioning and as much skill building training as we can get them within the amount of time you work with them. We found that because of the level of, of, of talent that our students have, and that's different than skill, it's just, you know, what they bring to the table, we can also start directing them to scholarships that they can apply for now. The two who we've been working with a little longer both auditioned for the classical singer competition, which has a music theater element to it, and both got to the semifinals and one got to the finals. And now that that means they don't get any money necessarily, but they now have notice from other places that could give them scholarships. Yeah, and it's like you said, it's so smart to start now because we don't fund the actual college tuition. I wish we could. The reality is that we have to help them both choose places to audition for and then discover where the money is. The nice thing is these students, when they're admitted, people really want to give them money because they're really good. This year, we're going to be much more on top of that in terms of being more, I'm like the, I say that like, I'm thinking of me as like your aunt with a credit card and I'm going to be the aunt who's like, what scholarships did you apply for? Are you applying for scholarships? Um, because it's, it's a real bummer at the end of the year when they have to get out schools that are top schools that they just can't afford. But we also don't, we don't say don't audition there and you can't afford it because you just never know. You just mm-hmm. never know when an angel donor is going to come out of the woodwork and fund your, you know, we're not being pipe dreamy about it, but that could ha- always happen. If you could give advice to a high school student who doesn't necessarily feel like they have the resources or opportunities necessary to audition yeah. for or get into college programs, what would you say? I would say, first of all, Google what, what's out there that's free in terms of dance class, especially. There's so much good free dance stuff happening through COVID. You can sort through it, and some of it will be for you and some of it won't. But, I mean, some of it's li- uh, Instagram Live or Facebook Live or stuff is archived, you know, or it's on YouTube. I would say never. This is my voice therapist, you know, voice mom self. Don't ever do voice lesson things. Don't take voice lessons via YouTube. You just need, you need someone to listen, need but work with you. you need somebody to listen to make sure you're producing things healthily. And dance is, is that to a certain degree, of course, but you can, you know, work on tap even more than ballet because it's sound driven. Um, unfortunately, tap is not so important for college auditions, but you can get a sense of it and you can watch yourself in the mirror. Whereas with voice, you, you know, you really need that outside ear. So that's my soapbox about voice. But I would say, um, Start with your teachers at school, if you go to church, you know, or your community center. If you get any kind of training at all, that's really helpful. And sing a lot if you're an MT. Sing, sing wherever you can, you know, do, because some, some of it's how do I get over the nerves of auditioning and you got to sing in front of people, whether that's talent shows, whether that's in church, like I said, um, there are a lot of communi- community events going on now in support of Black Lives Matter and anti-racism, and you can always volunteer your time with something like that. Another thing I would do that I just thought of is reach out to, if you have a, any kind of college or university near you, 
that has a music ed major or especially what's called a vocal pedagogy major, mm-hmm. ask if, you know, is there somebody that you could be like a guinea pig student? I never thought of that before, but places where that exists are Penn State, Boco, and they, those, those students who are getting their master's in music theater vocal pedagogy, they also have undergrads that they work with. But, you know, schools are really aware of needing to, to make this process more equitable, and that's a great way to do that. But yeah, Boko Shenandoah, Penn State, NYU Steinhardt has that, this vocal pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are just the places I know off the top of my head. I bet USC has it if you're in California. Um, and it doesn't mean they're, they don't exist in places other than New York and LA. Yeah, right. So I would just call up, and you know, you might even from that get a teacher at the school who they don't have that program, but the teacher says, but I would like to work with you. And that might involve, you know, auditioning, but auditioning in this realm it's a lot of showing up and really just wanting to do the work. And then in terms of acting, it's less objective, right? So yeah. so singing skill and dance skill are kind of, they're objectively measurable. Acting isn't. So I would say, think of your favorite performers. You don't want to mimic them, but read about their careers. You'd be surprised. Film and TV people, a lot of them start in theater. Um, and of course, I'm sure you've all heard, like, read as many plays as you can. There's tons of good stuff on Instagram right now about, if, if you're a person of color, a, a black indigenous or person of color, like, you know, playwrights, favorite playwrights, a lot of performers are tweeting that. And you don't just have to do that material, but it will lead you to things that you'll probably enjoy reading. I'm a big fan on Amazon of like reading a sample of something. You can read a pretty significant amount of it to see if you like it or not. And see as much theater as you can. You know, a lot of people think it's about doing shows. It is, but it's also about watching shows. And there's so much free stuff online now because of COVID that very fancy places are streaming things live. Because you've been involved in the college audition process for a while, what changes do you think have to be made at an institutional level in college theater programs to make them more diverse in, you know, a long-term sustainable way. I'm going to say, you know, right out of the gate that I don't work at a university. I have good friends who do. Um, one of my, my educational touchstones is Amy Rogers from Pace. And when I was forming TFCA, I took her out to lunch last summer. She, as always, was really generous. And she's a white woman like me. And she has her very diverse program, always really committed. And so she's got her on the pulse, so to speak, of how those students are feeling as much as she can without being them, you know. And I don't just mean being in having the same intersectionality that they do, just actually being them, you know. Um, And she's been committed to that way before it was most people were paying attention. Me, as compared to someone like her, I don't have the wherewithal to say, this is what I see in a university level, but I can tell you what students say. And that's because that's my, you know, as they enter college and as they're making their decisions. So I think it's sort of a catch 22, like the more diversity there is in a program, the more diverse it's going to (laughs) be. You know, the more students who are black indigenous people of color or trans or non-binary or any, or disabled, the, the more they're going to feel welcomed. And that's just because they're going to have peer groups. Um, I think in the college process, if the colleges could cut out the middle expense, meaning it's not the training, that's not their responsibility. It, it's not the getting to the auditions, although the more that they're available at unifieds or regional auditions, the better. By the middle, I mean 
application fees, audition fees, et cetera. I mean, you know, pre-screens aren't hard to do with, and most people have a phone. That's not that hard, but it's any of the associated fees. Also being on top, and, and I know, you know, I don't work for university. I did work for high school. I cannot imagine the level of commitment that watching pre-screens. Yeah. And I know that most faculty, I don't think anybody gets paid extra for that. So it's just part of their job. Getting those results out as quickly as possible so people aren't, the later that they find out they're going to get a callback, the harder it is financially to schedule stuff. And we dealt with that this year with some TFCA students. But I thought, I don't want them to make this extra audition situation happen, whether it's, you know, moving around their schedule at Unifieds or making an additional mm-hmm. trip if they're really not going to be considered. And we kind of hit a wall trying to find that out. And it ended up that it wasn't a consideration because they had gotten some early admissions that sort of superseded that. But Mm -hmm. that's so important. And for schools that don't have pre-screens and don't go to campus or don't and and aren't able to do, sorry, for which you have to go to campus, this might be moved this year because it, you know, who knows what's going to be virtual. I would say if students, you know, have a certain income restriction, let them do a pre-screen. And I know some schools hate, hate, hate that, that don't do pre-screens, and that's why they don't do them, and I totally respect that. For us, for example, or the parents who have to make the decision, it's do I commit significant money to that as a crapshoot, or do I know that it's it's just easier to take it off the table if it's not a real, it um, if it's not a real possibility. At the university itself, I was a audience person in a great town hall that Sherry Sanders had on mm. Sunday with a, an organization called OCU Cares, which she helped them set up. And it's so impressive. I would say, look, look that up. And I know a lot of schools are have, have similar things that I'm not familiar with, but it's about students who aren't white or white, cis, hetero, essentially yeah. feeling accepted at OCU, which, you know, is in Oklahoma, which is not necessarily, it's a great school and it's very, itself, it's like a bastion of, you know, acceptance, but it's still a hard place to be. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that from some of our scholars who are from there. And if if you're not, you know, if you don't fit all the molds of white, cis, hetero, so they have different divisions within it. Like, you know, there's the, um, black indigenous person of color there's the for for different groups and also different aspects of the education and I think that's a really cool model and I'm speaking about it sort of inarticulately because I just learned about it um (laughs) but then they they come together as an organization too so they have sort of committee chairs essentially who address concerns within different realms and then they have a professor who oversees it um and the idea is then that they that they are able to disseminate that information to the university without the students having a fear of any mm-hmm. kind of retribution. And I know Juilliard's working on a similar initiative where it's actually, I just heard a little bit about it from a colleague, but it's one of the suggestions was that they, that the person that, that sort of takes it out of who your immediate professors are. So the students that are involved can anonymously self-report and they just say what division they're in like if they're in drama or yeah. dance or instrument instrumental but that it's it's um looked at and and mediated or whatever the correct word is by somebody who isn't from that some a faculty person who isn't from that division so there's mm-hmm. no there's no bias basically mm-hmm. um and those are all really big ideas and I know I'm sitting from the outside looking in and I have no idea how hard that I have a small sense of how hard bureaucracy is in any institution like that. But I think the 
the cool thing is that uh, that uh, universities are talking about that now, and let's hope that just like with everything in this movement, this awakened movement about racial inequity, mm-hmm. systemic inequality, that people keep going, especially as it gets yeah. closer to school and they have to worry about how the heck are we going to get our students on campus? Are we going to get them on campus? I mean, this is a this is a a really hard year in general for academia, but this is even more important in my opinion. It was some forum I was listening to. It might have been the Black Lives Matter Broadway Advocacy Coalition. I think it was. And Tanya, I think it was Tanya Pinkins who said, budgets are moral documents. And I think schools need to know that, you know, because schools, if they could operate that way too, that would be great. And again, my paycheck isn't dependent on what schools are doing. So it's easy to sit on the outside looking in. Mm. But I know how it affects students. And that's, hopefully that's their main priority too. How can someone donate to the, co- the fund for college auditions? Great question. The easiest way and kind of the way right now is to go to our website. It's the fund for college auditions with an S.org, not.com. And you'll see a big donate button and um, it processes through PayPal, but you don't have to have a PayPal account. There are some suggested donations that cover certain specific expenses, like a pair of dance shoes or some scripts. Um, and the, one thing that I know from running TFCA, but also am keeping in mind is I'm donating to the causes that I'm choosing for um, anti-racism work is monthly donations are so good. And so what has really been awesome for me to see and us as an organization is people that are like a $10 monthly donation. Like I know that that is for that person that's clearly, you know, $10 is a lot. And I get that. I was in college a bunch of times. So, um, you know, and this is a hard economy for everybody. Um, And I'm not saying $10 once isn't awesome, but um, a parent asked me, would you rather a parent donor, generous parent donor who knows my work said, would you rather have a lump sum or would you rather have it spread out? And at that that time I said a lump sum because we were really trying to get to the level where we could fund and we could invite another scholar we've done, which is so awesome because he was patiently waiting in the wings, um, knowing that we were just waiting to see what the financial situation was. But now I would say, um, if you have, if you want to, if you're thinking about monthly $5, $10 monthly, yeah, or more is a great thing to do. And I think that's really true of any organization, Mm. especially right now when people are donating, donating to things like, you know, like I donated to the Equal Justice Initiative, which is founded by the guy who Just Mercy is based on. But again, let's hope that the fervor doesn't die off. So the the way to ensure that is to give monthly donations. And for us, that's so helpful because Right now is an expensive time because students are front-loading their training. The, the rising seniors, are this, they're now seniors, are front-loading their training. And then January is really expensive <laughs> because of Unifieds. You know, we spend, we want all of our students to get to go and stay at the Palmer House. And, you know, it's, it actually is very reasonable. But again, the point is not, let's do the budget. Let's do the, it's the budget version if you still, if your parents still have a good family income. It's not unlimited budget, but it's like, we have saved up for this. We, we want you to have the advantages that your peers have. So yeah, they're going to stay at the Palmer house, but that is an expensive endeavor just because it's everyone traveling and we pay for lifts or taxis or Ubers or whatever gets you to and from the airport and everything except food, unless the family is really in dire financial straits, in which case we also fund that in a normal travel year. We also make sure everybody gets to come to New York 
once for a mock audition, an MTCA mock audition, if they're working through MTCA, which thus far all of our students have at least partially, and a Broadway show of their choosing, and we arrange a backstage tour because we have the Broadway community is so so generous with their yeah. uh, with their sensibility in helping our scholars. Yeah, so the web page is great. Also, every Monday starting yesterday, we're releasing we're calling them very originally Music Mondays, <laughs> um, but we. <laughs> fundraiser that we started at the beginning of COVID where students paid a donation to work with a Broadway performer in a small group and then one-on-one also on a role that they played on tour or on Broadway. So we started yesterday with my shot from Hamilton um, with our scholars. So you'll see our scholars also, and you'll know who they are because they're on our Instagram. Um, Mm -hmm. But this in particular, this says these are our scholars and all of their, their participation was donated because we always want to include them. Um, but our junior scholars are, are sorry, they're seniors now, are also going to participate. So we're doing that every Monday. It's like nine weeks in a row because we have some really cool ones. And my shot happens to be also very topical, um, yeah. both for college auditions, but, you know, just, well, of course, shot has a lot of resonance right now. But the idea is we are not going to throw away the opportunity we have right now to help students when the attention is on the organization. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just cool. They just did a great job. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. I really respect some, like, I just respect you so much as a person, as a business owner. All props to you and what you're doing is absolutely incredible. So, so I met Maggie because she <laughs> with MTCA and I'll never forget. She, you would don't edit this out, Miss Maggie, please. She and her, she came with her dad and they talked about how she sang the national anthem at all these different um, stadiums and it <laughs> And he had a t-shirt that was like her national anthem tour. But this woman had, and still does, but she had the most incredible voice and just presence as a singer. I'm going to get all emotional, but I remember what you sang for your college audition. She sang, I've never been in love before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from Guys and Dolls and Summer of 42. Yes. Not- track of time. Yes. Yes. Losing track of <laughs> I didn't even remember myself. <laughs> Um, and yeah, she's just a spectacular performer as well as a person. So thank you, Maggie, for doing this. It's so awesome. Thank you so much, Ellen. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you found it helpful, I would love it if you could screenshot it, tag at Actor Aesthetic, and share it to your Instagram stories so that I can see who is following along with me there. If you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and also hit that subscribe button so that you can join me every single week for a brand new episode of the Actor Aesthetic podcast. Until then, this is Maggie Barrow signing off. It takes a village. I'll see you next week.